and this is Romance at Droitgate Spa. How many of you have read it? The theme of this is In the snobbish world of invalids, a mere gout sufferer suddenly makes the social grade. <laughs> when young Freddy Fitchfitch went down to Droitgate Spa, the celebrated cure resort in the west of England, to ask his uncle and trustee, Major General Sir Elmer Bastable, to release his capital in order that he might marry Annabelle Purvis. He was fully alive to the fact that the interview might prove a disagreeable one. However, his great love bore him on, and he made the journey and was shown into the room where the old man sat nursing a gouty foot. Hello, 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 uncle, he cried, for it was always his, possible, his policy on these occasions to be buoyant until thrown out. <laughs> good morning, good morning, good morning. Gaw, said Sir Elmer, with a sort of long, shuddering sigh. It's you, is it? And he muttered something which Freddy did not quite catch, but was able to take the words less straw. <laughs> Freddy's heart hang sank a little. He could see that his flesh and blood was in a difficult mood, and he guessed what must have happened. No doubt Sir Elmer had been in the pump room early in the day to take the waters, and while there had met had met and been high-hatted by some swell whom the doctors had taken had, had twice given up for dead. These snubs, he knew, were always snubbing the unfortunate old man. On coming to settle in Droitgate Spa, Sir Elmer Bastable had a humiliating shock. The head of a fine old family, and the possessor of a distinguished military record, he had expected on his arrival to be received with open arms by the best people and welcomed immediately into the inner set. But when it was discovered that all he had wrong with him was a touch of gout in the right foot, he found himself cold-shouldered by men who mattered and thrust back on the society of the asthma patients and the fellows with slight liver trouble. For though few people are aware of it, so true is it that half the world does not know how the other half lives. There is no section of the community in which class consciousness is so rampant as among invalids. <laughs> the ancient Spartans, one gathers, were far from cordial towards their helots, and the French aristocrat of the pre-revolution days tended to be a little standoffish with his tenantry. But their attitude was almost backslapping compared to that of, let us say, a man who has been out in Switzerland taking insulin for his diabetes towards one who is simply undergoing treatment from the village doctor for an ingrowing toenail. <laughs> and this is particularly so, of course, in those places where invalids collect in gangs, Baden-Baden, <laughs> for example, or Hot Springs, Virginia, or, as in Sir Elmer's case, Droitgate Spa. In such resorts, the atmosphere is almost unbelievably clicky. The old aristocracy, the top-notchers, with maladies that get written up in the medical journals, keep themselves to themselves pretty rigidly and have a very short way with the smallest fry. It was this that soured Sir Aylmer Bastober 
Bastable's once sunny disposition, and caused him now to glare at Freddy with an unfriendly eye. Well, he said, what do you want? Oh, I just looked in, said Freddy. How's everything? Rotten, replied Sir Elmore. <laughs> I just lost my nurse. Dead? Worse. Married. <laughs> the cloth-headed girl has gone off and got spliced in one of the canai. A chap who's never even had so much as athlete's foot. <laughs> she must be crazy. Still, one sees her point of view. No one doesn't. I mean, said Freddy, who felt strongly on the subject, it's love that makes the world go round. It isn't anything of the kind, said Sir Elmore. Like so many fine old soldiers, he was inclined to be a little literal-minded. <laughs> I never heard such dashed, silly nonsense in my life. What makes the world go round is, well, I, I've forgotten at the moment. It certainly isn't love. <laughs> How the deuce could it? Oh, right, oh, I see what you mean, said Freddy, but put it another way. Love conquers all. Love's all right. Take it from me. The old man looked at him sharply. Are you in love? Madly. Of all the young cuckoos. And I suppose you've come here to ask for money to get married on? Oh, not at all. I just popped round to see how you were still, as the subject has happened to crop up. <laughs> Sir Elmer brooded for a moment, snorting in an undertone. Who's the girl? he demanded. Freddy coughed and fumbled with his collar. The crux of the situation, he realized, had now been reached. He had feared from the first that this was where the good old snag might conceivably sidle into the picture for his Annabelle was of humble station, and he knew how rigid were his relatives' views on the importance of birth. No bigger snob ever swallowed a salicylate pill. Well, as a matter of fact, she's a conjurer's stooge. A what? A <laughs> uh, conjurer's assistant, don't you know? I saw her first at a charity matinee. She was abetting a bloke called the Great Baloney. <laughs> In what sense abetting? Well, she stood there upstage, don't you know, and every now and then she would skip downstage and hand this chap a bowl of goldfish or something and beam at the audience and do a sort of dance step and skip back again. You know the kind of thing. A dark frown had come into Sir Elmer's face. I do, he said grimly. My only nephew has been ensnared by a bally-beaming goldfish handler. Ha! <laughs> I wouldn't call it ensnared exactly, said Defer. Fred said Freddy, deferentially. I would, said Elmer. Get out of here. Right, said, Sir Fre said Freddy, and caught the 235 Express back to London. And it was during the journey that an idea flashed upon him. The last of the Fitch Fitches was not a great student of literature, but he occasionally dipped into a magazine, and everybody who has ever dipped into a magazine has read a story about a hard-hearted old man who won't accept the hero's girl at any price. So what do they do but plant her on him without telling him who she is? And by Jove, he falls under her spell completely. 
and then they tear off their whiskers and there they are. <laughs> there was a story of this nature in the magazine which Freddie had purchased at the bookstall at Droitgate's bar station. And as he read it, he remembered what his uncle had told him about his nurse handing in her portfolio. <laughs> By the time the train checked in at Paddington, his plans were fully formed. Listen, he said to Anne Purv Annabel Purvis, who had met him at the terminus, and Annabel said, What? Listen, said Freddy, and Annabel again said, What? <laughs> Listen, said Freddy, clasping her arm tenderly and steering her off in the direction of the refreshment room, where it was his intention to get a, to have a, f a quick one. To a certain extent, I am compelled to admit that my expedition has been a washout. Annabel caught her breath sharply. No blessing. No blessing. And no money. No money. The old boy ran entirely true to stable form. He listened to what I had to say, snorted in an unpleasant manner, and threw me out. The old routine. But what I'm working around to is that the skies are still bright, and the bluebird is on the job. I have a scheme. Could you be a nurse? I used to nurse my Uncle Joe. Then you shall nurse my Uncle Elmer. The present incumbent, he tells me, is just tuned out, and he needs a successor. I will phone him that I am dispatching immediately a red-hot nurse, whom he will find just the same as Mother makes, and you shall go down to Dry Dead Spa and ingratiate yourself. But how? Why cluster around him, smooth as a pillow, bring him cooling drinks, coo to him, and give him the old oil. Tell him you are of gentle birth, if that's the expression I want. And when the time is ripe, when you have entwined yourself about his heart, and he looks upon you as a daughter, shoot me a wire, and I'll come down and fall in love with you, and he will give us his blessing and uh, consent and all that stuff. I guarantee this plan, it works. So Annabel went down to Droitgate Spa, and about three weeks later, a telegram arrived for Freddy, running as follows. Have ingratiated self. Come at once. Love and kisses. Annabel. <laughs> Within an hour of its arrival, Freddy was on his way to Podagra Lodge, his uncle's residence. He found Sir Aylmer in his study. Annabel was sitting by his side, reading aloud to him from a recently published monograph, on certain obscure ailments of the medulla oblongata. <laughs> For the old man, though a mere gout patient, had pathetic aspirations toward higher things. <laughs> there was a cooling drink on the table, and as Freddy entered, the girl paused in her reading to smooth her employer's pillow. Gaw, said Sir Aylmer, you again? Here I am, said Freddy. Well, by extraordinary chance, I'm glad to see you. Leave us for a moment, Miss Purvis. I wish to speak to my nephew here, such as he is, on a serious and private matter. Did you notice that girl, he said, as the door closed? I did indeed. Pretty. An eyeful. And as good as Sir Aylmer said, as she is beautiful. 
You should see her smooth pillows. <laughs> and what a cooling drink she mixes. Excellent family, too, I understand. Her father was a, a, a colonel, or rather was. He was de he's dead. Ah, well, all flesh is, as flesh is as grass. No, it isn't. Nothing of the kind. <laughs> Two things are entirely different. I've seen flesh, and I've seen grass. No resemblance, whatever. <laughs> However, that is not the point at issue. What I wanted to say is that if you are not a damn fool, that sort, that's the sort of girl you would be in love with. I am. A damn fool? <laughs> no, no, in love with that girl. What? You've fallen in love with Miss Purvis already? I have. Well, that's the quickest thing I ever saw. <laughs> what about your beaming goldfish? Oh, that's all over. A mere passing boyish fancy. Sir Elmer took a deep swig at his cooling drink and regarded him in silence for a moment. Well, he said at length, breathing heavily, if that's the airy, casual way in which you treat life's most sacred emotions, the sooner you are safely married and settled on, the better. If you're allowed to run around loose much longer, indulging those boyish fancies of yours, I foresee the breach of promise case of the century. However, I'm not saying I'm not relieved. I am relieved. I suppose she wore tights, this goldfish girl? Pink. Disgusting. Thank God it's all over. Very good, then. You are free, I understand, to have a pop at Miss Purvis. Do you propose to do so? I do. Excellent. You get that sweet, refined, most suitable in all respects girl to marry you, and I'll hand over all that money of yours, every penny of it. I will start at once. Heaven speed your wooing, said Sir Aylmer. And ten minutes later, Sir Freddy was able to inform his uncle that his whirlwind courtship had been successful. <laughs> and Sir Elmer said that when he had asked heaven to speed his wooing, he had no notion that it would speed it to quite that extent. <laughs> he congratulated Freddy and say he said that he hoped he appreciated his good fortune. And Freddy said he certainly did because his love was like a red, red rose. And Sir Elman said, no, she wasn't. <laughs> and when Freddie added that he was walking on air, Sir Elman said he couldn't be. The thing was physically impossible. <laughs> However, he gave his blessing and promised to release Freddie's capital as soon as the necessary papers were, were drawn up. And Freddie went back to London to see his lawyer about this. His mood, as the train sped through the quiet countryside, was one of perfect tranquility and happiness. It seemed to him that his troubles were now definitely ended. He looked down the vista of the years and saw nothing but joy and sunshine. If somebody had told Frederick Fitchfitch at that moment that even now a V-shaped depression was coming along which would shortly blacken the skies and lower the general temperature to freezing point, he would not have believed him. Nor when, two days later, as he sat in his club, he was informed that a Mr. Rackstraw was waiting to see him in the small smoking room, did he have an, did he have an inkling that here was the V-shaped depression in person?
His heart was still light as he went down the passage, wondering idly, for the name was unfamiliar to him, who this Mr. Rackstraw might be. He entered the room and found there a tall, thin man with pointed black moustaches, who was pacing up and down, nervously taking rabbits out of his top hat as he walked. <laughs> Mr. Rackstraw? His visitor spun round, dropping a rabbit. He gazed at Freddy piercingly. He had bright, glittering, sinister eyes. That is my name, Mortimer Rackstraw. Freddy's mind had flown back to the charity matinee at which he had first seen Annabelle, and he recognized the fellow now. Oh, the great baloney, surely. I call myself that professionally, so are you, Mr. Fitch. So you are Mr. Fitch, ha, huh? fiend. Eh? If I'm not mistaken, you are Frederick Fitch. Frederick Fitch Fitch. I beg your pardon. In that case, I should have said fiend, fiend. <laughs> he produced a pack of cards and asked Freddy to take one, any one, and memorize it and put it back. Freddy did so absently. He was considerably fogged. He could make nothing of this. How do you mean, fiend, fiend? He asked. The other sneered unpleasantly. Cad, he said, twirling his mustache. Cad, said Freddy, mystified. Yes, sir, Cad, you have stolen the girl I love. I don't understand. Then you must be a perfect ass. It's quite simple, isn't it? I can't put any plainer, can I? I say you have stolen. Well, look here, said Mortimer Axel. Suppose this hat is me, is, a, is me. This rabbit, he went on, producing it from the lining, is the girl I love. You come along on presto, the rabbit vanishes. It's up your sleeve. It is not up my sleeve, and if it were, and if I had a thousand sleeves and rabbits up every one of them, that would not alter the fact that you have treacherously robbed me of Annabelle Purvis. Freddy began to see daylight. He was able to appreciate the other's emotion. So you love Annabelle too? I do. I don't wonder. Nice girl, what? I, I see, I see. You worshipped her in secret, never telling your love. I did tell my love we were engaged. Engaged? Certainly, and this morning I got a letter from her saying that it's all off because she has changed her mind and is going to marry you. She has thrown me over. Oh, oh. Well, I'm frightfully sorry, uh, deepest sympathy and all that, but I don't see what's to be done about it. What? I do. There still remains revenge. <laughs> oh, I say, dash it. You aren't going to be stuffy about it. I am going to be stuffy about it. For the moment you triumph, but do not imagine that this is the end. You have not heard the last of me, not by any means. You may have stolen the woman I love with your underhanded chicanery, but I'll fix you. How? Oh, never mind how. You'll find out how quite soon enough. Oh, nasty jolt, you're going to get my good fiend. And almost immediately. As sure, said Mortimer Rackstraw, illustrating by drawing one from Freddy's back hair, as eggs are eggs. I wish you a very good afternoon. And he took up his top hat which in his emotion he had allowed to fall to the ground, brushed it on his coat sleeve, 
extracted from it a cage of lovebirds and strode out. A moment later he returned, bowed a few times right and left, and was gone again. <laughs> to say that Freddy did not feel a little uneasy as the result of this scene would be untrue. There had been something in the confident manner in which the other had spoken of revenging himself that he had not at all liked. The words had had a sinister ring, and all through the rest of the day he pondered thoughtfully, wondering what a man so trained in the art of having things up his sleeve might have up it now. <laughs> it was in a meditative mood that he dined, and only on the following morning did his equanimity return to him. Able, now that he had slept on it, to review the disturbing conversation in its proper perspective, he came to the conclusion that the fellow's threats had been mere bluff. What, after all, he asked, him, asked himself, could this conjurer do? It was not as if they had been living in the Middle Ages, when chaps of that sort used to put spells on you and change you into things. <laughs> No, he decided it was mere bluff, and with his complacency completely restored, had just lighted a cigarette and fallen to dreaming of the, world, of the girl he loved. When a telegram was brought to him, it ran as follows. Come at once, all lost, ruined stares face, love and kisses Annabelle. <laughs> Half an hour later he was in the train speeding toward Droitgate Spa. It had been Freddy's intention on entering the train to devote the journey to earnest meditation, but as always happens when one wishes to concentrate and brood during a railway journey, he found himself closeted with a talkative fellow traveler. The one who interrupted Freddy's thought was a flabby, puffy, puffy man of middle age, wearing a red waistcoat, brown shoes, a morning coat, and a bowler hat. With such a grade A bounder, even had his mind been at rest, Freddy would have had little in common, and he sat chafing while the prismatic fellow prattled on. Nearly an hour passed before he was freed from the infliction of the other's conversation, but eventually the man's head began to nod, and presently he was snoring, and Freddy was able to give himself up to his reverie. His thoughts became less and less agreeable, as the train rolled on. And what rendered his mental distress so particularly acute was the lack of detail in Animal's telegram. It seemed to him to offer so wide a field for uncomfortable speculation. All lost, for instance. A man could do a lot of thinking about a phrase like that. And Ruin stares face. Why, he asked himself, did Ruin stare face? While commending Annabelle's thriftiness in keeping the thing down to twelve words, he could not help wishing that she could have brought herself to spring another tuppence and be more lucid. But of one thing he felt certain, all this had something to do with his recent visitor. Behind that mystic telegram, he seemed to see the hand of Mortimer Rackstraw, that hand whose quickness deceived the eye, and he knew that in lightly dismissing the other as a negligible force, he had been too sanguine. By the time he reached Podagra Lodge, 
the nervous strains become almost intolerable. As he rang the bell, he was quivering like some jelly set before a diet patient. <laughs> and the sight of Annabelle's face as she opened the door did nothing to alleviate his perturbation. The girl was obviously all of a twitter. Oh, Freddy, she cried. The worst has happened. Freddy gulped. Rackstraw? Yes, said Annabelle. But how did you know about him? He came to see me, bubbling over a good deal with veiled menaces and whatnot, explained Freddy. He frowned and eyed her closely. Why didn't you tell me you'd been engaged to that bird? Oh, I didn't think you'd be interested. It was just a passing girlish fancy. <laughs> You're sure? You didn't really love this blighted prestidigitator? <laughs> no, no, I was dazzled for a while, as any girl might have been when he sawed me in half. <laughs> but then you came along and I saw I'd been mistaken and that you were the only man in the world for me. Good egg, said Freddy, relieved. He kissed her fondly and he did so. There came to his ears the sound of rhythmic hammering from somewhere below. What's that, he asked. Annabelle wrung her hands. It's Mortimer. Is he here? Yes, he arrived on the 115... I locked him in the cellar. <laughs> Why? To stop him going to the pump room. Why shouldn't he go to the pump room? Because Sir Elmer has gone there to listen to the band, and they must not meet if they do we are lost. Mortimer has hatched a fearful plot. Freddy's heart seemed to buckle under within buckle under within him. He had tried to be optimistic. But all along he had known that Mortimer Rackstraw would hatch some fearful plot. He could have put his shirt on it. A born hatcher. <laughs> what plot? Annabel wrung her hands again. He means to introduce Sir Elmer to my Uncle Joe. He wired Sir un Uncle Joe to come to Droitgate Spa. He had arranged to meet him at the pump room, and then he was going to introduce him to Sir Elmer. He was a little fogged. It did not seem to be much of a plot. Now that can, I can never be is. All he wants is to make himself unpleasant and prevent our marriage. And he knows that Sir Aylmer will never consent to your marrying me if he founds out that I have an uncle like Uncle Joe. Freddy ceased to be fogged. He saw the whole devilish scheme now. A scheme worthy of the subtle brain that could put the ace of spades back in the pack, shuffle, cut three times, and then produce it from the inside of a lemon. <laughs> Is he so, so frightful, he quavered. Look, said Annabel simply. She took a photograph from her bosom and extended it toward him with a trembling hand. That is Uncle Joe, taken in the large regalia of a grand exalted periwinkle of the mystic order of Welks. <laughs> Glance, Freddy glanced at the photograph and started back with a hoarse cry. Annabelle nodded sadly. Yes, she said, that is how he takes most people. The only fine hope I have is that he won't, won't have been able to come, but if he has... He has, cried Freddy, who had been fighting for breath. We traveled down the train together. What? Yes, he must be waiting in the pump room now. And at any moment, Mortimer will break his way out of the cellar. The door is not strong. What shall we do? 
There's only one thing to do. I have all the papers. You have no time to read now. <laughs> the legal papers, the ones my uncle has to sign in order to release my money. There's just a chance that if I rush to the pump room, he, I may get him to put his name on the dotted line before the worst happens. Then rush, cried Annabel. I will, said Freddy. He kissed her quickly, grabbed his hat, and was off the mark like a jackrabbit. A man who was endeavoring to lower the record for the distance between Podagra Lodge, which is in Arteriosclerosis Avenue, <laughs> and the Droitgate Spa Pump Room has little leisure for thinking, but Freddy managed to put in a certain amount as his feet skimmed the pavement, and the trend of his thought was such that he gave renewed vigor as to give renewed vigor to his legs. He could scarcely have moved more rapidly if he had been a character in a two-reel film with the police after him. <laughs> and there was need for speed. Beyond a question, Annabelle had been right when she said that Sir Aylmer would never consent to their union if he found that she had an uncle like her Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe would get right in amongst him. Let them but meet, and nothing was more certain than that the haughty old man would veto the proposed nuptials. A final burst of speed took him panting up the pup room steps and into the rotunda, where all that was best and most refined in Droitgate's bar was accustomed to assemble of an afternoon and listen to the band. He saw Sir Aylmer in a distant seat and herded, headed, hurried toward him. "'Go,' said Sir Elmer. "'You?' Freddy could only nod. "'Well, stop puffing like that and sit down,' said Sir Elmer. "'They're just going to play poet and peasant, play poet and peasant.' Freddy recovered his breath. "'Uncle,' he began, but it was too late. Even as he spoke, the conductor's baton fell, and Sir Elmer's face assumed that reverent, doll-like expression of attention so familiar in the rotundas of cure results, your resorts. Shh, she said. Of all the uncounted millions who in their time have listened to bands playing poet and peasants, few can ever have listened with such a restless impatience as did Frederick Fitch Fitch on this occasion. Time was flying, every second was precious, and at any moment disaster might befall, and the band went on playing as if it had taken on a life job. It seemed to him an eternity before the final oom pum pum Uncle, he cried as the echoes died away. Shh, said Sir Aylmer testily, and Freddy, with a dull despair, perceived that they were going to get an encore. <laughs> of all the far-flung myriads who, year in and year out, have listened to bands playing the overture Raymond, few can have ever chafed as did Frederick Fitch Fitch now. This suspense was unmanning him. This delay was torture. He took the papers and a fountain pen from his pocket and toyed with them nervously. He wondered dully as he sat there how the opera Raymond had ever managed to get itself performed if the overture was as long as this. <laughs> they must have rushed it through in the last five minutes of the evening as the audience groped for its hats and wraps. <laughs> but there is an end to all things, even to the overture from Raymond. 
just as the weariest river winds somewhere safe to sea, so does this overture finally and eventually finish. And when it did, when the last notes faded into silence, and the conductor stood bowing and smiling with that cool assumption common to all conductors, that is they and not the perspiring orchestra who have done the work. <laughs> he started again. Uncle, he said, may I trouble you for a moment? These papers? Sir Aylmer cocked an eye at the documents. What papers are those? The ones you have to sign, releasing my capital. Oh, those, said Sir Aymer, Aylmer genially. The music had plainly mellowed him. Of course, yes. Certainly, certainly, give me... He broke off, and Freddy saw that he was looking at a distinguished, silvery-haired man with thin, refined features who was sauntering by. Afternoon, Rumbelow, he said. There was an unmistakable note of obsequiousness in Sir Elmer's voice. His voice had become pink, and he was shuffling his feet and twiddling his fingers. The man to whom he had spoken paused and looked down. Seeing who it was that accosted him, he raised a silvery eyebrow. His manner was indis undisguisedly supercilious. <laughs> oh, Bastable, he said distantly. A duller man than Sir Aylmer Bastable could not have failed to detect the cold hauteur in his voice. Freddy saw the flush on his uncle's face deepen. Sir Aylmer mumbled something about hoping that the distinguished-looking man was feeling better today. Worse, the other replied curtly. Much worse. The doctors are baffled. <laughs> Mine is a very complicated case. <laughs> he paused for a moment, and his delicately chiseled lip curled in a sneer. In a sneer. And how is the gout, Gastable? <laughs> gout? <laughs> Without waiting for a reply, he passed on and joined a group that stood chatting close by. Sir Elmore cho choked down a mortified oath. Snob, he muttered. <laughs> Thinks he's everybody just because he's got telangiectasis. I don't see what's so wonderful about having telangiectasis. Anyone could have. What on earth are you doing? What's the devil all this you're waving under my nose? Papers? Papers? I don't want any papers. Take them away, sir. And before Freddy could burst into the impassioned plea which trembled on his lips, a commotion in the doorway distracted his attention. His heart missed a beat, and he sat there frozen. On the threshold stood Mortimer Rackstraw. He was making some inquiry of an attendant, and Mortimer and and Freddy could guess only too well what that inquiry was. Mortimer Rackstraw was asking which of those present was Major General Sir Aylmer Bastable. Attached to his arm, obviously pleading with him and appealing to his better self, Annabel Purvis gazed up into his face with tear-filled eyes. A moment later the conjurer strode up, still towing the girl. He halted before Sir Aylmer and threw Annabel aside like a soiled glove. His face was cold and hard and remorseless. With one hand he was juggling mechanically with two billiard balls <laughs> and a bouquet of roses. Sir Elmer Bastable? Yes? 
I forbid the bands. What bands? Their bands, said Mr. Rackstraw, Mortimer Rackstraw, removing from his lips the hand with which he had been coldly curling his moustache and jerking it in the direction of Annabel and Freddy, who stood clasped in each other's arms, waiting for they knew not what. They're not up yet, said Annabel. <laughs> the conjurer seemed a little taken aback. Oh, he said. Well, when they are, I forbid them. And so will you, Sir Elmer, when you hear all. Sir Elmer puffed. Who is this bited, tight bounder, he asked irritably. Mortimer Rackstraw shook his head and took the two of clubs from it. <laughs> A bounder, maybe, he said, but not tight. I have come here, Sir Elmer, in a spirit of altruism, to warn you that if you allow your nephew to marry this girl, the grand old name of Bastable will be Mud. Sir Elmer started. Mud? <laughs> mud. She comes from the very dregs of society. I don't, cried Annabelle. Of course she doesn't, cried Freddy. Certainly she does not, assented Sir Elmer. She told me herself that her father was a colonel. Mortimer Rackstraw rotted a short, sneering laugh and took an egg from his left elbow. <laughs> she did, eh? And did she add that he was a colonel in the Salvation Army? <laughs> what? And that before he saw the light, he was a singer of a silver ring bookie, known to all heads, all the heads as Rat-Faced Rupert, their Bermondsey Twister? <clears throat> Good God! Sir Elmer turned to the girl with an awful frown. Is this true? Of course it's true, said Mortimer Rackstraw. And if you want further proof of her unfitness to be your nephew's bride, just take a look at her Uncle Joe, who is now entering left center. <laughs> and Freddy, listless now and without hope, saw that his companion of the train was advancing toward them. He heard Sir Elmer gasp and was aware that Annabel had stiffened in his arms. <clears throat> he was not surprised. The sun filtering through the glass of the rotunda lit up the, fa the man's flabby puffiness, his morning coat, his red waistcoat, and his brown shoes, and rarely, if ever, thought Freddy, could the son of Droitgate Spa have shone on a more ghastly outsider. There was nothing, however, in the newcomer's demeanor to suggest that he himself felt out of place in these refined surroundings. His manner had an easy self-confidence. He sauntered up, and without Jen, slapped the conjurer on the back and patted Annabelle on the shoulder. Hello, Mort. Hello, Annie, my dear. Sir Elmer, who had blinked, staggered, and finally recovered himself, spoke in a voice of thunder. You, sir, is this true? What's that, old cock? Are you this girl's uncle? That's right. God, said Sir Elmer. He would have spoken further, but at this point, the band burst into pomp and circumstance, <laughs> and conversation was temporarily suspended. When it became possible once more for the human voice to make itself heard, it was Animal's Uncle Joe who took the floor. He had recognized Freddy. Why, I'll bet you, he said. We traveled down on the train together. Who's this young fellow, honey, that's hugging and squeezing you? He is the man I'm going to marry. 
He is not the man you're going to marry, said Sir Elmore. Yes, I am the man she's going to marry, said Freddy. No, you're not the man she's going to marry, said Fremorter Rackstraw. Annabelle's Uncle Joe seemed puzzled. He appeared not to know what to make of this conflict of opinion. Well, settle it among yourselves, he said genially. All I know is that whoever does marry you, Annabelle, is going to get a good wife. That's me, said Freddy. No, it isn't, said Sir Elmer. Yes, it is, said Annabelle. No, it's not, said Mortimer Rackstraw. Rackstraw. <coughs> because I'm sure no man, proceeded Uncle Joe, ever had a better niece. I've never forgotten the way you used to come and smooth my pillow and give me cooling drinks when I was in the hospital. There was the sound of a sharp intake of breath. Sir Elmer, who was saying, it isn't, it isn't, isn't, had broken off abruptly. Hospital, he said. Were you ever in a hospital? <laughs> Mr. Boffin laughed indulgently. Was I ever in the hospital? That's a good one. That would make the boys on the medical council giggle. Ask them at St. Luke's if Joe Boffin was ever in a hospital. Ask them at St. Christopher's. Why, I've spent most of my life in hospitals. Started as a little child with congenital pyloric hypertrophy of the stomach and never looked back. Sir Elmer was trem trembling violently. A look of awe had come into his face. The look which a small boy wears when he sees a heavy, heavyweight champion of the world. Did you say your name was Joe Boffin? That's right. Not THE Joe Boffin. Not the man that there was that was an interview with in the Christmas number of The Lancet. That's me. Sir Elmer started forward impulsively. May I shake your hand? What are there? I'm proud to meet you, Mr. Boffin. I am one of your greatest admirers. Nice of you to say so, old man. Your career has been an inspiration to me. Is it really true that you have some that you have thrombosis of the heart and vesicular emphysema of the lungs? <laughs> That's right. And your temperature went up to one oh seven point once went up to one oh seven point five? Twice. When I had hyperparexia. Sir Elmer sighed. The best I've ever done is 102.2. <laughs> Joe Boffin patted him on the back. Well, that's not bad, you know, not bad at all. Excuse me, said a well-bred voice. It was this distinguished-looking man with the silvery hair who approached and approached them. The man Sir Elmer had addressed as Rumbelo. His manner was diffident. Behind him stood an eager group, staring and twiddling their fingers. Excuse me, my dear Bastable, for intruding on a private conversation, but I, I fancied, and my friends fancied, we all fancied, said the great group, that we overheard the name Boffin. Can it be, sir, that you are Mr. Joseph Boffin? That's right. Boffin of St. Luke's? That's right. The silvery-haired man seemed overcome by a sudden shyness. He giggled nervously. Then may I, may we say, my friends and I, how much we felt we were just like uh, unwarranted intrusion, of course, but we're all such great admirers. 
I suppose you have to go through a great deal of this sort of thing, Mr. Boffin. P people coming up to you, I mean, and uh, perfect strangers, I mean, to say, quite all right, old man, quite all right. Always glad to meet the fans. <laughs> then may I introduce myself. I am Lord Rumbelow. These are my friends, the Duke of Mull, the Marquis of Peckin, Lord Percy. How are you? How are you? Come and join us, boys. My niece, Miss Purvis. Charmed. The young chap she's going to marry. How do you do? And his uncle, Sir Elmer Bastable. All heads turned towards the Major General. Lord Rumbelow spoke in an awed voice. Is it really so, Bastable? Your nephew is actually going to marry Mr. Buffin's niece? <laughs> oh, I congratulate you, my dear fellow. A most signal honor. A touch of embarrassment came into his manner. He coughed. <clears throat> we were just uh, talking about you, oddly enough, Bastable, my friends and I, saying what a pity it was that we saw so little of you. And we were wondering, it was the Duke's suggestion, if you would care to become a member of a little club we have, quite a small affair, rather exclusive, we like to feel, the Twelve Jolly Stretcher Cases. <laughs> My dear Rumbelow, we have felt for a long time that our company was incomplete without you, so will you join us? Capital, capital. Perhaps you will look in there tonight? Mr. Boffin, of course, he went on deprecatingly would, I'm afraid, hardly condescend to allow himself to be entertained by so humble a little circle. Otherwise, Joe Boffin slapped him affably on the back. My dear fellow, I'd be delighted. There's nothing stuck up about me. <laughs> well, really, I hardly know what to say. Well, you can't all be both Joe Boffins. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> the true democratic spirit. Why, I was best man at a chap's wedding last week, and all he got was emotional dermatitis. <laughs> Amazing. Then you and Sir Elmer will be with us tonight? Delighted. We can give you a bottle of lung tonic, which I think you will appreciate. We pride ourselves on our cellar. A babble of happy chatter had broken out, almost drowning the band, and Mr. Boffin, opening his waistcoat, was showing the Duke of Mull the scar left by his first operation. <laughs> Sir Elmer, watching them with throbbing heart, was dizzily aware of a fountain, fountain pen being thrust into his hand. <laughs> eh, he said, what? What's this? What? 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 The papers, said Freddy. The merry old documents in the case you sign here where my thumb is. Eh, eh, what? Eh? Oh, yeah, yeah, yes, to be sure. Yes, 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 sir, Sir Elmer. Absent-mindedly affixing his signature. Thank you, Uncle A Thousand. Quite, quite. Don't bother me now, my boy. Busy. Got a lot to talk about to these friends of mine. Take the girl away and give her a sulfur water. And brushing aside Mortimer Rackstraw, who was offering him a pack of cards, he joined the group about Joe Buffin. Freddy clasped Annabelle in a fond embrace. Mortimer Rackstraw stood glaring for a moment, twisting his moustache. Then he took the flags of all nations from Annabelle's back hair and, with a despairing gesture, strode from the room. <laughs>